Well, good morning. Glad to be with you today. I just want to uh, bring everyone's, uh, get you up to speed if you haven't heard already on what happened last Sunday and the week leading up to it as we've been raising funds to new, move into a new space. Uh, our goal was to hit $75,000 to make the move possible. Last Sunday, we actually hit this number, uh, $117,515. So... Which is absolutely incredible. Uh, I, if people are asking, does this mean we don't need to like really give that much then? Can we like reduce? Here, the, the, uh, the reality of the situation is we always thought it'd be about $115,000 to move. I just thought that would be an unrealistic thing to ask, and I didn't want to encourage, discourage people from get, to give. Uh, and so this is absolutely incredible. But to me, I, what makes this exciting to me is not the number, but it's the amount of people that said they wanted to make this happen. And not, not whether you gave... 20 bucks or a couple thousand dollars, whatever your commitment is or was, it's not the number to me. It's how many people that said, we want to trust God with our finances to make more space for people we don't even know yet to create an atmosphere where they can meet Jesus and grow in a relationship with him. And so I'm really excited and grateful for that. Uh, we're still working through, see, I'm one, I'm one of those people that it's like more about, here's what we need to do. I don't actually know how to do it. So I'm like, we need to move and we need to raise money. And we did it. But apparently you have to do like inspections and like a lease actually matters. And so we're working through those details right now. Uh, hopefully next, this coming week or next week, we'll have a lease signed. Again, the plan is to uh, take over the facility on March 1st. And at this point, our first service would either be the 15th or the 22nd of March, but we'll let you know uh, more as things approach. And so really excited about that. Uh, and also, and I, and I share that too, uh, because this is the question that we're looking at this morning as we continue our series masterclass. It's this, how does the resurrection impact our daily lives. See, some of us are more detail-oriented people. Some of us are just kind of like, you know, figure out what we got to do. I'm not sure how we're actually going to do it. And we've been talking about particularly the last couple of weeks, the resurrection of Jesus. How we saw a couple weeks ago, Paul, who's the author of 1 Corinthians, kind of give the historical uh, reliability that this actually happened. And then last week, we, we talked about because it has happened, here's what it meant. This is what this means, that, we, uh, that this life is not all that there is, that we have a future resurrection and a future hope, the kingdom of God, which we will one day uh, take place and uh, take part in. And so the, the question then becomes, if we know what is going to happen, if we know how it's going to end, if you will, what impact does it actually have on us in our day-to-day, day-in, day-out, Monday through Sunday, actual Live. And that is exactly what we're going to be talking about this morning. And so if you have a Bible, uh, go ahead and open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you don't, there's a black one somewhere around that you can uh, read along with us. And if you do not own a Bible, you can take one of those home. It is our gift to you. Now, what I'm going to do today is I'm gonna, uh, we're going to read through and I'm going to explain what's happening. But I'm going to apply this text maybe a little bit differently than the first century hearers would have uh, uh, applied it to their own lives because the context in which we live is different. And I think sometimes today we miss out on what it actually means to follow Jesus the way that, that Christ is actually calling us to follow him. And so I'll explain that as we go. So again, we're picking this up in verse 35. He, a couple weeks ago, we talked about how the resurrection did happen. Last week, we talked about because it happened, that means that there is a future hope for us. And now he's going to talk about specifically this question of how is it possible for our bodies to actually resurrect, right? How is that actually going to take place? And so verse 35, Paul says this, he says, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? What kind of body will they have when they come? And so some are understandably been talking about this idea of resurrection. How is it possible for our bodies that, that experience death and decay to actually resurrect and come back to life? Now, that is a great question. Now, it seems to be that this question wasn't necessarily being asked like out of curiosity, but out of a, this doesn't make sense, so it cannot happen. And, and Paul is basically saying, that's a great question again. 
our bodies. After a while, they don't go anywhere or they decompose. Today, we, we do cremation. Like what actually happens? How do we actually resurrect? And what's happening here is that some are re- rejecting the possibility of a hope of a future of salvation from Jesus and resurrection into his kingdom because they simply didn't know how it could happen, right? And have you ever been in a situation like that where you didn't believe something because you just didn't understand how it could be possible? Like I, we shared a few weeks ago, you know, it's actually pretty crazy how five weeks ago we were just possibly playing for a new space and now we're actually going to be raising the money to move. That's actually insane if you think about it, about a five-week span. But a couple of weeks ago, uh, we, were, we were kind of negotiating with the facility, the tenant that's currently in the place that we're going to move about here's when we could move. Here's what it would look like. You know, we had basically about three big things that we just couldn't do. They they had to happen according to our timeline or else we wouldn't be able to afford it to move. And I remember it was a Thursday morning. We came to the list and we called them and they agreed to everything, which I was like, oh my goodness, that's actually crazy. Like this actually could work on our timeline. But then that came the question of how are we actually going to raise the money for this, right? And I remember I shared this story. You know, we, Brian, who's on staff here, does operations and everything, received a phone call uh, later that day. We were, uh, we were together. We were walking to this pastor's gathering here that we have here in the Raleigh area. And he receives a phone call from the guy who set up our brokerage account because a couple months prior, before this building thing even took place, someone asked if they could donate stock to New City, but didn't, you know, ask pretty nonchalantly. So we set this thing up. Apparently, the transaction went through. And so the guy calls Brian and says, hey, the money's going to be in, your, in, your, in the church's account in a day or two. And he's like, you know, and just by, you know, just to verify or whatever, do you know how much money is being transferred into your account? And Brian's like, you know, we don't know. We're thinking maybe a couple thousand. I don't know. And he says, you know, $33,000. At which point, me and Brian are thinking, that is a mistake. And I'm thinking all like, New City's going to get in trouble because how do we give someone money back that they've given to us? Like, are they going to think we're like money laundering here? Like, I don't know what to do. Like, it, it didn't seem possible that that day we just said we're going to do this. Now we got to raise money. And this is the first step to make it happen. I didn't understand how it could happen. So like, surely that could not actually be the case. That's the problem here is that people are some skeptically saying that sounds great, but that's not actually possible. So here's how Paul responds. Verse 36. He says, you fool. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And as for what you sow, you are not sowing the body that will be, but only, uh, only a seed, perhaps of wheat or another grain. But God gives it a body as he wants, and to each of the seeds its own body. Now, to be fair, when Paul says, you fool, he's not being a jerk. He's not trying to be mean. Uh, biblically speaking, uh, whenever someone is referred to as a fool, as a fool throughout Scripture, it's, uh, it's this idea of someone who's rejecting God. And so he's kind of giving this kind of scriptural idea of somebody who is rejecting God. And he's saying this. Consider, he's saying it this way. You're saying it's not possible for our bodies to, to resurrect, especially when they die. The composer doesn't make sense. And he says, consider, you know, the miracle of the harvest, with you, if you will. When, it, when a seed is planted, you have to plant it in the ground. It dies and gives life to something much greater. Now, if you didn't know anything, I should have looked at this word. I didn't. So you guys know when I try to explain things, I don't know. I don't know if it's botany or whatever it is, you know, when you have a seed, whatever the agricultural term is for it, I don't know. But if you didn't know anything about it and someone presented to you a seed, you would, there is nothing in your mind, you would not, you would not assume that it could grow into a plant or to a tree, right? It would not make any sense to you. And Paul is saying that is exactly what's happening to us. His point is that God is the one who is ultimately in control and believe and gives believers resurrected bodies just like seeds give life to a plant. And this means that the fullness of life that we desire, that we ache, that we long for, is not going to be fully realized in this life, but in the age to come. In other words, it's not about heaven, it's about the kingdom of God. And so here's what I want to, here's the point I want to make and make, apply this a little bit differently again, that's this. That heaven isn't the goal. The kingdom of God is the goal. Following Jesus is not about going to heaven when you die. It's about experiencing the kingdom 
of God. And that's the point that we need to understand for us today. I want to follow with me, if you can, for about two minutes. It's going to sound a little bit technical, but I want to explain to us how, what some, something that we often miss in our day and age today that would have been better understood or was more assumed in the first century, especially for those that were Jews who then became followers of Jesus. And that's this. Today, you and I often view heaven and earth as, 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 as like separate, separate spheres, if you will, right? You have heaven, where you go to when you die, and you have earth, where you and I live until we actually actually die. But what we see scripturally is this kind of division, these kind of different places, or this, this, this kind of idea of two different spheres, is not what we see throughout scripture. That's not how they describe it. You know, again, well, the point of scripture is that heaven and earth were once united in the beginning when God created everything, when it was good before sin entered the world. And then sin created this separation between us and God's kingdom. And since then, God, even though he's patient and gracious with us, is working to ultimately reunite heaven and earth and to reinitiate the kingdom of God. God. And this is what it looks like throughout Scripture. So again, in the beginning, God creates the entire universe, all the planets, the cosmos, everything. is amazing, right? And then, the, and then the humans show up onto the scene, and he places the, the first couple, Adam and Eve, in a garden, right? In this place, everything was good. I heard a commentator this week kind of explain how, you know, it's not like they were just not doing anything. They were working, but it wasn't frustrating. You can kind of think of like, you know, if they're in a garden, and I don't know how to garden things, but that's a lot of work, right? Farming's a lot of work. You can think of it this way. It's like, even if you like accidentally drop a Seed, it would, it would, the seed would take root in the, in the ground. It would give life. It's this, this idea of working without frustration, of accomplishing things, and being perfect communion with God. That's the overlap in the Garden of Eden. And what happens? Sin comes, and we see a separation. And, and then what happens? God, through Abraham, says, I'm going to send a redeemer to reconcile hu humanity back to me. And so you have the Israelites, when they leave e Egypt, they create this tabernacle as they're going through the wilderness. And then ultimately, when they get to, uh, they, when they get to Israel, to the promised land, they create uh, a temple. And both the tabernacle and the temple were the beginning of this overlap of the heaven and earth of God's kingdom coming back to earth. What happened was, in order to enter into the holiest place of the temple or the tabernacle, uh, the, the priests would have to offer animal sacrifices, which would kind of create this clean space because God is perfect, righteous, and holy, and we are not. So somehow, someway, these animal sacrifices would create this uh, ability for uh, sinful human beings to enter into God's presence. And then ultimately, Jesus shows up on the scene. And in John chapter 1, it, uh, the, uh, John, who, who describes Jesus' coming, it says that Jesus came and he dwelt among us. Now, the literal translation of that of John chapter 1 is that Jesus came and he pitched his tents, or he, that he pitched his tabernacle. In other words, when Jesus came, he became the temple for us, the tabernacle uh, for us. Uh, he is the place where heaven and earth are overlapping, uh, and he creates pockets of heaven when he comes. What does Jesus do when he comes, right? He becomes, you know, the presence of God here on earth, and he heals the blind. He performs miracles. He forgives sins. He's perfectly loving and gracious. He helps us experience a part, partially, what the kingdom of God will be like in full when he comes a second time. What does he do? He then tells us to pray that, that God's will on earth will be done the same way that it is in heaven. He comes to initiate the beginning of us experiencing the kingdom of God. But then what happens, right? Then Jesus is killed. And so Jesus is not just the, the, ta the tabernacle or the temple or the presence of God. He then becomes the sacrifice so that you and I can now enter into his presence, that we have the Holy Spirit in our lives, that we can pray directly to God, not because we're awesome or because we did anything, but because he came to sacrifice for us. In other words, he becomes the clean space for everybody who would love and to trust in him. 
So again, the question is, what happens when we die? Again, Scripture does seem to say that when we die, we do go to heaven. You can think of the thief on the cross where Jesus tells him that today the thief will be with him in paradise. And so that is true, but that is not the focus throughout Scripture. The focus is on how, is on how heaven and earth are overlapping and how this overlap will fully uh, consummate, will fully take place when Jesus returns a second time and reestablishes his kingdom. And so we see hints of this in the book of Revelation, although it's maybe a confusing book to read at times. What we see is this, this is what happens. You see, in the beginning, we have the Garden of Eden. In the end, God's kingdom in the form of a city comes. He reestablishes the heavens and the earth, and there's a complete overlap in these dimensions, and we live and dwell in God's perfect kingdom forever. And this is what Jesus has come to do. He came to initiate the overlap. It's what theologians kind of call the already but not yet, that God's kingdom has come, but it has not yet been fully realize. And when we die, we will, when Jesus returns, we will then resurrect when he returns and with physical bodies and dwell in the kingdom of God forever. So again, for us, for 21st century Western believers today, we just need to understand it's not about heaven. It's about God's kingdom and us playing a role in his kingdom. And so that being said, Paul continues by saying this in verse 39, again, talking about the resurrection of our bodies, which will make it possible for us to take place in his perfect kingdom. He says, not all flesh is the same flesh. There is one flesh for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the splendor of the heavenly bodies is different from that of earthly ones. There is a splendor of the sun, another of the moon, and another of the stars. In fact, one star differs from another star in splendor. In other words, he's now giving in another analogy to show that our earthly bodies and our heavenly bodies, the, the resurrected bodies that we will experience in God's kingdom, won't be the exact same. And our resurrected bodies will be well-suited for our future existence, just like animals and the habitats that they are in now or the stars, you know, where they are now, that we will actually have resurrected bodies that will make it possible to live in this place of perfect perfection and peace and hope. And so again, to continue explaining this idea, verse 42, so it is with the resurrection of the dead, sown in corruption, raised in incorruption, sown in dishonor, raised in glory, sown in weakness, raised in power, sown a natural body, raised a spiritual body. In other words, here Paul is giving a glimpse of our resurrected bodies and what they will be like. And I'll, to be fair, and again, it does kind of uh, lay behind our, fully, uh, our ability to fully understand what they're going to be like, but his point is that our current bodies are, are marked by sin, by corruption, by death, by pain, and our future resurrected bodies will be marked by power, by glory, by incorruption. In other words, what he's saying is that our current bodies, are, or our future bodies are more, but they are not less than our earthly ones, and they will be suited for God's kingdom. They will be suited for God's kingdom. So although we might be like, well, I'm not sure how it's going to look, like how old are we going to be, what clothes, I have no idea. But he's saying that God is going to make it possible, not because of us, because of him, for us to dwell with him forever. In other words, the point is this, that the resurrection impacts our bodies, not just our souls. Again, how this applies for us today is that it impacts our bodies. What does that tell us? That God cares about us. He cares about our bodies. He cares about our physical needs. We cannot, as followers of Jesus, just be okay with people going to heaven when they die. That God has called us to help initiate his kingdom here so that people can experience a glimpse of the love that he has waiting for us in his kingdom. And to help illustrate this, let me give you possibly a highly controversial example, okay? It's before 
Thanksgiving, so let's for a second, let's talk about Christmas music, okay? Some of y'all, some of y'all think Christmas is just a day event, right? Because coming on the 25th and you say, well, you have to wait to put your decorations up and listen to Christmas music until after Thanksgiving or a couple of weeks before Christmas or a couple of days before Christmas. See, what's wrong, right? The problem is Christmas is December 25th, right? As of now, it is a future event. But it's not supposed to be just enjoyed when that future event comes. Christmas is a season of love and joy and happiness that is supposed to be experienced more than just one day. So some of y'all, some of us, maybe, instead of uh, who understand that, instead of waiting to the last possible minute, 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 have already begun listening to Christmas music. Some of us may, may or may not be the first people in our neighborhoods to put up their Christmas lights. Why? <laughs> Because we understand that Christmas is not just a future event, that it is something that we are to enjoy and experience now. And of course, it will culminate on Christmas, right? It'll culminate on that day. But it's meant to, we're supposed to see hints of it now to warm our souls as we go into this holiday season. And I share that because if we are followers of Jesus, here's the deal, that we have to love and care for others. We cannot just be concerned about whether or not someone trusts and believes in Jesus. We cannot just be concerned about whether or not someone has a good theology or not. We have to love and meet people's needs because this is exactly what Christ did when he came to earth. And so let me just say, so while we're on the topic of controversial subjects, let me just say this and let me explain what I mean. So let's talk about social justice for just a second. Now I get it. I'm not trying to, you know, cause controversy, and I understand that that word has different meanings to different people, but let me just say this. If you and I are followers of Jesus, and somebody comes to us and says they've been hurt, uh, abused, or mistreated, or a group of people were, are to say that, our first reaction cannot be to roll our eyes. It cannot be to say, you're just making up excuses. It cannot be to say, well, I pulled myself up from my bootstraps, and so that's what you need to do. No, that's not how Jesus would respond. Jesus always responds with empathy, with love, with understanding, with trying to understand where people are at, why they are hurting. And to prove my point that I'm not just making this up, that we need to love everybody well, think of it this way, that at one point Jesus is going around, he's doing his ministry, and a Roman centurion comes up to Jesus, who is a Roman official, he's a high-ranking you know, government employee, if you will, and he has a, he's a, he's a child who is sick and is about to die. And he asks Jesus to heal his child. Now, if you are a Jew, which Jesus was a Jew, and most of his followers at this point were, were Jewish people. If there is anybody who does not deserve to be healed, it is a Roman government official and anybody associated with them. Why? Because they were oppressive, they were cruel, uh, they would beat, they would beat, they would kill. Oftentimes, they probably would even rape uh, some of the people, some of the women, women, some of the children in the areas that they would conquer. And this was happening in Jerusalem itself. And so you have this Roman centurion who's hiring a government official who is a highly oppressive to a people and Jesus, and he asked Jesus for help. And what does Jesus say? He doesn't say, I'm not going to do it. He doesn't say, you don't deserve it. He says, I love you just the way I'm at, the same way I love everybody else. And I'm going to make a way for you to experience my love, grace, and forgiveness. And so if we are followers of Christ, this means that no matter what, how somebody votes, no matter what their po political ideology is, no matter what they have done, no matter what they have looked like, God is calling us to love them. We can disagree on things, but what we cannot do is say, get over it. I don't care. We have to love people because the resurrection is not just about a future event. It's God inviting us to help ex people experience pockets of the kingdom of God today. And he's calling us to love others the exact same way that Christ has loved 
us. God gave his life for all of us, not when we figured it out, not when we deserved it, but in spite of us. And he's encouraging us to do that in the same way. Because here's what we know, right? People come to Jesus not when you give them a great debate, not when you show how awesome you are, or how perfect, or how, how much you don't sin. People come to Jesus when they are loved and accepted by other people, and they can't explain why that person is like that. That is how people meet Jesus, when we love them where they are today and we help people experience just pockets of the kingdom of God and what that will be like when we meet him again. And so that being said, Paul continues, verse 44, again, talking about this idea of this future resurrection. He says this, if there is a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, and the last Adam, talking about Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural. Uh, then the spiritual. The first man was of earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven, talking about Jesus again. Like a man of dust, so are those who are of the dust. Like a man of heaven, so are those who are of heaven. And just as we have been born of uh, the image of man of dust, we will also bear the image of the man of heaven. Here's what's happening here. That Paul is referring back to the uh, Genesis, Genesis creation account in Genesis chapter 2 to elaborate the differences between our earthly bodies and spiritual bodies. And so he talks about uh, being a man of dust in the first Adam, kind of the creation story of how uh, human beings came to be. He says we do have a human nature, but at the same time, we also have a spiritual nature. Now, when he says spiritual, we should not, that it is not equal in material. So it's not, again, he's not saying it's immaterial, but he is saying that he's different. And he's describing what our resurrected bodies will be like and how they are, again, they are different from our current earthly bodies. His point is this, that all of us bear the image of Adam as humans, that all of us are humans, that all of us are equals. But at the same time, we also bear the image of God, even if in our current state, it is somehow smeared and it's not as perfected form that it will be in his kingdom. In the kingdom of God, this perfect image will be restored. That's what he's saying, that this already that Jesus came to initiate his kingdom, and when he returns, we'll be resurrected with physical bodies to live out this perfection uh, for eternity with him. And so how this applies to us today, again, is what we're talking about, and that's this, that we need to pre prepare now for what your future will be. If you're a follower of Jesus, if I'm a follower of Jesus, that we and you and I need to prepare now for what our future will be. Again, it's not just about making sure people know Jesus so they can go to heaven when they die. It's about helping people experience the love and grace that he has given us here and now as a foretaste of what eternity will be like. And so what this means for us is that if we were to sit around and say, I'm good, I'm saved, what everyone else going to get your stuff together, I don't care. That is a direct disobedience to what Christ has asked of us. That is to directly disobey what he has asked of us. Again, he has asked us to help love and initiate his kingdom here as we wait for him to return. I think of it this way. When I was either, it was either my senior year of college or my, right after graduating, I can't remember because, you know, I was in school and I was working on, we were working on my master's and we were helping get church plants. So I had a bunch of odd jobs, right? And one of the, these random jobs I had was I, I cleaned these three PNC banks a couple times, twice a week. Now, it's the only job I actually ever got fired from uh, because who would have thought you actually have to be able to clean things to like get paid to clean things. And so, but I remember one of these times, it was a weekend, I was driving, I was going to the third, the last bank of the day, and I get there, and there's all these construction people, like, parked outside, inside, they're doing, like, this massive renovation uh, to the bank. And so I call my boss, and I'm like, well, <laughs> I guess I can't, I mean, I guess I can't clean it, you know, there's stuff going on there. And he says, yeah, that's fine. But he told me that he still wanted me to go in there and take out, take out the trash. And so I'm like, so I, I been, didn't argue with him, so I hung up, and I'm like, why would I, it's going to be a mess, it's going to be dirty, why would I take out the trash? Like, that, that doesn't make any sense. And I also just felt awkward, like, hey guys, I'm here to take out the trash, as you're like destroying the place. And so I didn't do it. 
Great, great idea, right? So I left, and part of it was me being dumb, but part of it was like, why would I do this? It's going to be dirty, right? And I, I wish I could remember everything that happened. I can't, but I, later that day, somehow, someway, he's by the bank, and he goes inside to see if I would do it, to see if I took the trash out, and he saw that I didn't. You see, and so that obviously was not good, right? So what, ha- what happened in that moment? I was like, well, it doesn't matter. It's going to be a mess. Like, it'll be fine, whatever. The reality is each of the tellers had their own little, you know, trash can. Maybe the main trash can would be dirty, but the bathrooms would have been clean. Like, there were still going to be people uh, that needed stuff to be cleaned or, or the trash still needed to be taken out so that during the week it would not overflow. I was so focused on what well, doesn't matter that I didn't focus on what he'd actually called me to do, which would actually make a difference here. And for us as followers of Jesus, we can get so focused on, well, I'm just going to go to heaven when I die, that we, that we directly disobey, or maybe not directly disobey, that might seem harsh, but that we just kind of feel like it doesn't really matter when the reality is people are, people are missing out on the love of God when we don't love people, we don't initiate the kingdom of God the way that God has called us to do. I like what, what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, it'll be on the screen, this is the beginning of the Lord's prayer. He says it this way, again, he says, therefore, you should pray like this, and this is how he begins. He says, our Father in heaven, your name be not honored as holy. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What is he saying? Initiate the kingdom. It will not be perfect. You will not always get it right. We will not always do everything that we're supposed to do, but we are supposed to create little pockets of the kingdom now so that people know that this is what it's going to be like in God's kingdom. And he's inviting us to help people experience the love of Christ today, not just hopefully one day when they die. In other words, here is why we need to prepare now for what our future will be and why it's important for us to love and care for people today and even meeting their physical and earthly needs. Here's why. Because Jesus came for everyone, not just for you. Jesus did not just come for me and for you and for our only, only our friends and only our family. He came for everyone. This is why 1 Corinthians, as we've been going through this book, and as we're ending it next week, just a side note, next week is graduation. You're not going to want to miss it. It's going to be awesome. But anyway, the point of 1 Corinthians is this, as we've seen. What has been the main theme? To love. We've been going through how we're supposed to love each other, how we're supposed to lay down our desires and our rights and our freedoms, even if they're not sinful, we're supposed to lay those aside for the good of other people. Why? So that they can experience the love of Christ. That is when people see and experience Jesus, when they feel loved, when they feel accepted, when they see somebody who actually sees them. And when we love people, it's a reminder that Jesus came for them, not just for us. The last thing I'll read, 2 Peter chapter 3, Jesus is probably leading disciple. He ends up writing this uh, in verse 9. He says, the Lord does not delay his promise as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. Again, Jesus did not just come for some people, for the good people, for the people who got it wrong less than other people. He came for everyone and anyone who wants to receive his grace and mercy. Again, this is the gospel, that Jesus loved us, that Jesus healed us, that Jesus gave his life for us, not because we deserved it, but purely out of his love and grace. It is not something you earn. It is something that you receive, that he is king, that he is Lord, that he is righteous and holy and just and gracious and gave his life for us so that anyone who would follow and trust in him can experience this future resurrected body in the kingdom of God. And here's the good news, that all of this ties back into the resurrection, that this, this whole idea of having resurrected bodies, and I don't know what they're going to be like, but we do know that, that Jesus, obviously, after he resurrected and was on earth before he went back to heaven, he had a resurrected body, and it was in such a way that people didn't really recognize him until he told them who he was. We saw Jesus walking through walls. Like, I don't know. That seems pretty cool to me, right? Like, that's awesome, right? We can be like, this, life's going to be perfect. But the reason that's all possible is because Jesus actually came, he actually died, and he actually resurrected. 
connected. This is why the resurrection matters, because it makes what's possible, what we're talking about today, for us to one day live in his fully initiated kingdom, not because of us, because of him. And here's what I know. As, as bad of a rap as the church sometimes gets, right? You know, it can be judgmental, it can be hypocritical, and I get it, like we're sinners, we're not going to be perfect. I, do, I would say this, there is nothing like the church when the church acts like the church. I don't know about you, but I have experienced some deep loss and pain in my life, and there is nothing like the people, the body of Christ, who came around and loved and supported us in that time. Some of you, even here at New City, have gone through hard things, have gone through difficulties, and you've had people come and love and support and help you out in those times. That is what the kingdom of God is like. We're gracious with each other. We love one another. We serve one another. Where it's not about us, but it's about other people. This is why one of the things that has made me so excited about uh, us raising this money to move, it is us saying it's not about us. It's not about our preferences. It's not about what we want. That we are going to give generously of our finances and of our resources so that other people can experience exactly what we're talking about. And so sometimes I I want us to leave challenged today in in one of two ways. One, I want us to be challenged to love people, but I don't want us to be to be discouraged. I want us to encourage you that you guys are doing this and let's continue to do it because love is how people see and experience Jesus. And so all that to say, really the point of what Paul is talking about in this text is, and that's this, that the resurrection of Christ is not just about what God has done, but it is about what he is doing and what he will do. In other words, it's not just about a past event, nor is it just about a future event, but it's also about what is happening now. The resurrection of Christ is not just about what Christ did one time in the past or one time in the future, but it's also about what he is doing today. And he's calling, and he's more so inviting us to take a part in that. You can think of it this way, like a marriage ceremony, right? You're dating, you're engaged, you get excited, and you do all this planning to get married, but once you get married, it, that's the beginning. That's not the end, right? Well, you got to love each other. You got to serve each other, right? We, get, we run into trouble when we become selfish and we become prideful and we stop focusing on our spouse. It's not just a one-time event that says, oh, we're married. doesn't matter. You are married, but it's supposed to be about a lifetime commitment of loving and serving one another. Jesus, we are, if you're a follower of Christ, you are saved. And if you do not yet know Jesus, the invitation for you is coming to know him. And you are saved and you will experience the resurrection and you will have a resurrected body. But it does not just stop there. That God is calling us again to create pockets here on earth where people are loved, people are accepted, people are given grace, that we forgive each other, that we create mercy, that we don't just figure out what we want, but we try to live in such a way that people can experience the implications of the resurrection, that God loves us, that God gave his life for us, and he's inviting as many people as possible to come and to know him. Again, the resurrection of Christ is not just about what God has done or Christ has done, but it is what he is doing today and what he will do in the future. And he's inviting us to take a part of this grand story of this grand mission of loving one another and helping as many people as possible meet Jesus and grow in a relationship with him. That is all possible because the resurrection did happen and has practical implications for our lives here today. So let's pray.